All right, so we continue in John. We're in John chapter 19 tonight. We're getting near the end of the book of John. So my son came home Friday for the summer, and earlier this week, I think night before last, he and his sister were watching one of those monster movies where a big monster stomps through a major city and kicks down you know, skyscrapers and the people just run screaming. And this was a newer one, but they've been making those since the 50s at least. And it made me think about how those kinds of movies will probably always be a thing because I think one of the reasons for the attraction to that kind of story is we're, it's a good reminder that in spite of all our technology and our know-how, there, there are still things that we can't control. And, and, and so it, it's, it's a reminder that we, we are still sometimes weak and helpless in the face of certain things that are bigger and stronger than us. And I mention that because when you read this part of the story, it seems like it's a fight between two colossal forces. You've got the empire of Rome, which is represented by Pilate, and you've got the Jewish religious establishment, which on the paper, those two are not equal forces, but the, the Jewish religious establishment had more, pay, more power than you probably think. Just to illustrate what I'm talking about, there's a reason why when Jesus is standing trial, he's not standing trial before a son of Herod. Herod the Great was the king, the un, un, undisputed king of Israel when Jesus was born. When he died, why didn't one of his sons become undisputed king? The main reason is the Jewish religious establishment traveled to Rome, stood before Caesar and said, please do not make Herod Archelaus the king of our country. He is terrible. And the Romans listened. The Romans listened because they want peace. They want, they want order. They want competent rulers. So uh, while the Jewish religious establishment wasn't an equal power to the Romans, they had power of their own. And so it seems like these two colossal forces are dueling over Jesus, sort of like in the, in the movie King Kong. There's that scene where, where Anne Darrow, and yes, she asked, I had to look that up. And Darrow is, is there while King Kong is fighting the T-Rex, and she's just kind of a pawn in the middle. And it's tempting to look at Jesus that way here. He's just this innocent man, this powerless individual whose fate is at stake while these two forces duel. And it is quite a duel. We're going to talk about that tonight. But you and I know, and John makes sure we know, that Jesus is actually the one in charge of this. Jesus is actually making sure of the outcome because he is there for a purpose. And, and he is no innocent, uh, he, is no, he is no helpless victim. He is, he is the ruler even now. So just for context, before we get back into the scriptures, we're in chapter 19. Last time we talked about how Pilate had questioned Jesus, his initial questioning, and he realized Jesus was innocent. He could have set Jesus free. He had the power to do that but he gambled. We don't know why. I, I have my own theory. He gambled by taking Jesus before the people who had assembled and offering to set free any prisoner they wanted. So let me just suggest you could have this man, Jesus, or you can have this man, and he chose Barabbas as his other guy, thinking, I think, well, they're not going to want to set loose a dangerous, violent criminal, but his gamble proved wrong. He misjudged. 
I think the reason Pilate did this, I said it last week, was he didn't just want to set Jesus free. He saw an opportunity to score points, to win a battle over the Sanhedrin, and for the, the people to think a little more highly of him. And he misjudged. So that's where we are at this point. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now that seems awfully, awfully unjust, and it was. But he has his purposes. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So just as a reminder of the motivation of these two groups, of Pilate and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin wants Rome to crucify Jesus, even though they could have taken him out and stoned him to death. They could have done that. We know that they know that because six weeks or so from now, they're going to stone Stephen to death. They don't have any fear that Rome is going to, is going to arrest them for an illegal execution. The Romans don't care as long as the order in general is kept. The reason they don't, we assume there are three motives. Number one, they don't want to be held responsible in the eyes of the Jewish people because they know Jesus is popular. They can blame it on the, the Romans if people are angry. Number two, they also know that if they kill Jesus, he might be seen as a martyr and their, his disciples then become heroes in the eyes of the people. Oh, you learn from him. Teach us. Tell us what the teacher told you. But this way, if the Romans execute Jesus, now Rome has officially declared the Jesus movement illegal. That makes them wanted men. So this is uh, another motive they might have is, this is how we get rid of the Jesus movement altogether. These, these poor uh, fishermen and, and merchants and peasants from Galilee, when they hear they're in the crosshairs of Rome, they'll just flee, they'll go back home to Galilee, we'll never hear from them again. And then there's a third reason they might have chose to do it this way, and that's because if Jesus is crucified, according to Deuteronomy 21-23, he becomes cursed in the eyes of God. So any lingering people who still saw Jesus as heroic, as, as Messiah, they could say to them, no, look, he's cursed by God. How can you worship? How can you believe a man who is hung on a tree can be the Messiah of Israel? On the other hand, Pilate wants Jesus to go free, and he has at least two reasons for that. Number one, because he knows he's innocent. And for all of Pilate and Rome's uh, atrocities, cruelties, they are a, a, a government that believes in law, in the, the rule of law, in right and wrong. Uh, and, and it bothers him to put to death an innocent man. But secondly, he also knows that the Sanhedrin want this, and he knows why they want it. And he's, he's too smart to want to give in to their craftiness and their scheming and their manipulation. He is he's the Roman. He's in charge. He will not be manipulated by these inferior people. His problem is now he's already offered to set one person free, and the crowd chose the wrong man in his eyes. 
So now he's trapped. What will he do? So I believe that's why he has Jesus flogged. And when we say flogged, you know this by now. You've been in church. You've, you've heard this sermon before. This is not the, the whipping that the Jews used. What Paul experienced several times himself, the, the 40 lashes minus one. That was regulated by the law of Moses. That's why they had a specific number of lashes. The, the law of Moses said you can't beat a man more than 40 times. It was done with a leather strap or a, or a whip. This was done with something different. This was done with, uh, with, with straps or thongs of, me- uh, of leather studded with metal and glass and bone. The purpose was not just to inflict pain, but to inflict blood loss, to tear the skin, to destroy this flogging was done for, by Pilate. His idea was, hey, I want to set him before the people and say, look, I've punished him. You don't want me to go further than this, do you? Haven't I done enough? Can't we set this man free? He was taking a chance because flogging sometimes killed the person who was flogged. But I'm sure he looked at Jesus and said, this is a young man. He's relatively strong and healthy. He should be able to stand it. Okay. Think about it for just a second. That picture, some of you know, there's this famous painting of Jesus standing before the crowd as Pontius Pilate gestures with his left hand. It was, it was painted in 1871. I looked it up this week as I was studying this, and it's called, the name of the, of the painting is Ecce Homo, which is uh, Latin for behold the man. I can't remember the artist's name. It's something Italian. Doesn't that help? <laughs> But it's a beautiful painting. It's one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen. The only problem with it, in that painting, Jesus stands there with with his uh, purple robe has been ripped so that his shoulders and back are exposed. His hands are bound. He's facing the mob. The problem with the painting is his body is completely unscathed. He's unwounded. But in real life, at that point, when, when Pontius Pilate brought Jesus before the people and he said, behold the man, what he was saying was, look at him. Have you ever seen anything so pitiful? Do you really want me to inflict any more pain on this man? At this point, Jesus was, was a bloody mess. By the way, have you ever thought about why did the soldiers spend so much time torturing Jesus? These were guys who did this kind of thing every single day. Why did they take the time on this one man to, I mean, it took somebody some real trouble to craft a crown of thorns. The the date palm tree is what we think they used. It has some really vicious thorns. That took some trouble. They had to go out and find some piece of purple, maybe a rug or a mantle or or a drapery. Why did they take all this time? Why did they spend so much time in mocking him? They didn't know Jesus. And I have two answers. One, these were men not from Israel. They probably weren't Italians either. Usually the Italian soldiers were in the the main regiments. These were guys from further out in the empire, some other place. But they didn't want to be in Israel. That wasn't their home. They didn't like these people. And to hear the thought of a, quote, king of the Jews, they must have thought that was hilarious, that the Jews would have a king. But I think there's something else going on here. And I don't talk about this a lot because the Bible doesn't talk about it a lot, but the devil is a real being. 
And the devil knows more theology than you and me. He knew what was about to happen. He knew why it was about to happen. He knew that God is only going to be in human flesh for a little while longer. And this was his chance to get in his licks. And so I think the devil was in them. I think the devil was, was pouring out all of his rage on Jesus at that moment. Because I think he also knew that if the Son of God turned back from the cross, all of us were lost. I think that's some of what was going on here. So Pilate says, behold the man. Now what happens next? In verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. By the way, Pilate at that point is being sarcastic. He knows they don't have the authority to crucify anyone. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. So what you see there is plan B. Their plan A was, we're going to tell Pilate the charge against this man is sedition. He is fomenting a rebellion against Rome, and you must deal with that. Well, now they say that didn't work. He's obviously seen that there's nothing dangerous about Jesus. So let's go to plan B. Let's tell him this man claims to be divine. Now, why would Pilate be afraid of this? Why would that spark fear in him? Well, think about what Pilate is. He is a Roman. The Romans are polytheists. You grew up and you took English in the eighth grade or whatever year you learned Greek and Roman mythology. So you probably remember if you paid any attention, which I understand some of you probably didn't. No judgment from me. But if you remember, the Roman myths have some stories about gods coming down and having union with human women and producing these half-men and half-god-like creatures, like Hercules, for instance. So my suspicion is that when Pontius Pilate heard the Jewish religious leaders saying, this man claims to be a god, he thought to himself, well, he does not seem like any man I've ever seen. I've never seen a man who comes before me and, and expresses no fear. What if they're right? What if he is? What if he's some kind of divine being? I, I'm not worried about the Jews being mad at me. I'm a little worried about Caesar being mad at me, but to have the gods angry with me, that's, that's something really scary. So that gives Pilate pause. It's interesting when you look at, at the way John tells the story, the, the complexity of this and, and the sort of back and forth of this duel between Sanhedrin and Pilate. So here's what happens next. Verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? I love that, that question. Where are you from? If he says Mount Olympus, I am out of here, right? <laughs> but Jesus gave him no answer. Now let me just say, Pilate is not used to people not answering him. This is one thing I can say for sure, is that when he asks questions, people respond. Because he's Rome. He is the embodiment of the Roman Empire, and you, you don't have any idea how much that meant in the ancient world. I mean, he's used to people being terrified. He's even used to people being angry, but not being silent. So his next response is to get furious. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And I love Jesus' response in verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now, if he stopped right there, what he said is very defiant. It's true, but it's defiant. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's not saying, you know, Pilate, we're going to overlook what you've done because the sin of the Sanhedrin is worse than the sin that you're about to commit. That's not what he said. I think he's saying, you've still got a chance, Pilate. You haven't committed the unforgivable sin. You haven't, you haven't rejected me yet. The Sanhedrin, they're already lost. They've decided that I'm of the devil, that I need to die. You have a chance. I think Jesus is still offering Pilate a chance to be saved. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now that, that argument right there is their trump card. That's the one they've been waiting to play. They've been holding it in case they needed it. We hear, you're not Caesar's friend, and we think, okay, whatever. You, you and I can't possibly comprehend what a big deal that was to Pilate. See, what Pilate wanted more than anything else was to advance. That was the whole point of Roman society. If you were a slave, you wanted to become a freedman. If you were a freedman, you wanted to become a citizen. If you were a citizen, you wanted to become what was called an equestrian. That's kind of the, the nobility of Rome. If you were an equestrian, which is what Pilate was, you wanted to become a senator. And if you were a senator, you sure would like to be Caesar someday. The only way to advance at the point that Pilate had reached, which was the equestrian class, the only place, the only way to advance was to be a friend of Caesar. Interestingly, when you go to Caesarea today, the ruins of ancient Caesarea on the coast of Israel, you see this mat, the, the ruins of this incredible palace that, that Herod built right there on the coast with a, a man-made uh, port, man-made harbor, and, and all the, you can just picture the lavishness that, that was back then. Herod, of course, building all this to impress the Romans. And right next door, there are the ruins of a temple that had been built by Pilate just a few years earlier, because he hadn't been there that long, Built by Pilate, it was a temple dedicated to the worship of Tiberius Caesar. Now, why? Well, because nothing advances you in Roman society more than being Caesar's friend. Man, I'm going to spend all my money to build a temple here in the land of these, these foolish Jews who, who claim to only worship one God. I'm going to build a temple that says, come worship my king, my Caesar. And that word will get back to... Tiberius, and boy, won't he like me? And now the, the Sanhedrin say, you know, if you don't execute this man, Caesar's going to find out that you're not really his friend at all. We're going to tell him there was a rival king, and Pilate let him walk away. And Pilate thinks, they've got me now. Because technically it's true. I mean, he does say he's got a kingdom. And I haven't put him to death yet. Pilate knows he has lost. So here's what he does. Verse 13. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. In other words, he takes them to the place where you're going to officially render a verdict. He hasn't done that yet, hasn't sat down at the judgment seat, but now he does. And in Aramaic Gabbatha, that's the Aramaic name of this judgment seat. Now it was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Pilate knows he's lost. He's not anymore trying to uh, appeal to the Jews. Right now he's mocking them. He knows if I'm going to put this guy to death, I want those Sanhedrin to know I'm putting to death their king. I want, to, I want at least the crowd to think that I have won in some sense. Behold your king. Meanwhile, John puts in this little detail about what day it is, what time it is. That's about noon. Right about the time this is happening, what John is showing us is right about the time this is happening, all around Jerusalem, families are slaughtering their Passover lambs. John, to John, this is a significant fact. Yeah. All right, so... Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? You can hear the sarcasm. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Let me tell you how significant that sentence is. Remember in the book of 1 Samuel, you know, the Israelites came into the promised land and for Long, long time, they had no rulers at all. They just, you know, God said, I'll be your king. You just trust in me. You, you follow the law. I'll fight your battles. I'll rule you. Everything will go great. Every once in a while, they'd run afoul of the law. They'd get into trouble. God would send them a deliverer. That's where the judges came from. The judges would come along, Deborah and, and Gideon and Samson, and they would deliver them, lead them for a while, get them back on the right track, and then things would go on as usual. The last of the judges was Samuel, right? Samuel was a great judge. He was a prophet of God. He was faithful. People come to Samuel and say, give us a king like all the other nations have. Samuel goes to God and he's, he's just torn up because he feels like a failure. I have let you down, Lord. And what does God say? This is one of the most encouraging things to me as a leader, right? God says, don't beat yourself up, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as king. Nobody knows that story better than the Sanhedrin. And yet here they say, we have no king but Caesar. Now, are they being sincere? Of course not. They don't have any more respect for Caesar than they do the man on the moon, but they're willing to say whatever they have to say to get their way in this moment. Remember, y'all, Remember, when you get to the point where the end justifies the means, you've already lost. And that's where these men are. We have no king but Caesar. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you read all four Gospels, none of them describe the crucifixion. There's no description of the nails being put in his hands or his feet. Uh, there's no description of 
how they lifted him up on the cross. All those details are missing to us. So we've had to go, we've had to do research through archaeology. We've had to find bones of people who've been crucified and find out, oh, okay, most of them it wasn't a, a nail through the tops of their feet, it was through their heels on the sides. And oh, okay, it probably wasn't in the palm of the hand, it was probably in a sturdier part of the, the arm or the wrist. And and you know, some of the men were tied instead of nailed. And we found all this out through archaeology. The Bible doesn't describe it. You know why? Because it was so common back then. They wouldn't have to describe it any more than uh, today. If you read a, a newspaper article about someone being executed in Huntsville, they don't give a long description of what uh, of what the injection is like, of what the process is of, of giving them a lethal injection, because we know that's just what happens. It was so much more common back then. If you lived in that Roman Empire, you saw people crucified. You knew what it took. We seem fascinated with the physical details. You've probably heard the sermons that describe in intricate detail what it meant to be crucified and what it was like, and I'm not saying those sermons are bad. But ultimately, the physical suffering isn't the point. Thousands of people died by crucifixion. Only one person experienced forsakenness by God because of their crucifixion, and that was Jesus. That's what won our victory. It wasn't just the death, and it wasn't just the physical suffering, as horrible as they were. I do think it is significant that it was that way, because when you think about it, it wasn't just the curse of God that made it significant. I can't think of a more evil way to kill somebody than crucifixion. So you see, and in that method, the ultimate evil of man, and Jesus submitting to that and destroying the evil of man through his death. I think that's significant. But ultimately our salvation was won through him taking our sins upon himself and experiencing the rejection of the Father for it. That's what saved our souls. But I, I do want you to note in Philippians 2, that famous passage where Paul says, hey, we need to be like Jesus uh, who, who didn't grab hold of his godhood, but, but emptied himself and became a, a man and not just a man, but a servant and, and, and died and didn't just die, he says. He submitted to death, even death on a cross. So this is a man writing back then when crucifixion was, was common saying, you know, if you're gonna die, if you're gonna come down to earth and, and allow yourself to die when you don't have to, surely you choose any other way, but Jesus chose death on a cross. That word Golgotha is Aramaic. In Latin, it's the word Calvary. That always bothered me when I was a kid because we'd sing all these songs about Calvary. And I always thought, where'd that word come from? That's where. It's the Latin version of Golgotha. Now, you may or may not care about this, but it's disputed where this actually took place in Jerusalem. Today, uh, most people believe it happened in a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And where that church came from was uh, in, in, the three, in the fourth century AD. The mother of King Constantine, the first Christian Caesar, came to Jerusalem. Her name was, was Helena. And she was a devout woman. And she wanted to find the spot where Jesus was crucified and risen. And she went and she interviewed the local people. They said, where did it happen? They all pointed to the same spot, this one little spot. They said, here's, here's where the cross was. 
That little cave over there is where he was risen. And that's where they built the church. And that church still stands today. Not the same structure, but it's been there ever since. Now, in the 1800s, there was a, a famous uh, British soldier named uh, General Charles, not General, but Colonel Charles Gordon, very famous uh, fighter all over the place, India and other places. And he went to Israel. He went to Jerusalem, devout man of God. And he was looking out the window of his hotel and he saw a hill in the distance that looked like a skull. And he said, I wonder if that's Calvary. And they did some digging and sure enough, they found that it had been an olive press, that area was, and near there was a cave with some tombs. And so when you go to Jerusalem today, you can visit Gordon's Calvary or the garden tomb. I enjoy being there, although personally I do believe it happened in the, in the traditional site. I enjoy going to the garden tomb because it still looks like it probably did in the first century. And you can go to that, that limestone tomb and you can look inside and you can say, okay, that's probably what it looked like when John and Peter looked inside that hole in the rock. Um, either way, either way, we know it happened outside the gates of the city and we know it happened in a highly traveled area so that people coming and going would see it. Jesus crucified between two thieves. John doesn't mention Simon of Cyrene. He doesn't mention the conversations with the two other criminals. He, his focus is on other things. And those details have already been established by the three earlier gospels. The interesting thing about crucifixion, and I, then I'll move on from that, the goal of crucifixion wasn't just to kill, it was to keep them alive as long as possible. So those men were skilled, those executioners. By the way, the execution team would usually be four soldiers led by one centurion. And they knew their jobs. They knew how to position the nails in such a way that there would be very little blood loss because they wanted them to die slowly. They wanted them to die by exposure or by suffocation very, very slowly. Sometimes they would give them a little uh, peg that they could sit on as they hung, or they might even tie their uh, chest to the pole so that they wouldn't, their bodies wouldn't sag and they wouldn't suffocate too quickly. The idea was, I want you to suffer and I want people to see you for as long as possible. I want this to send a message. Now there's a scripture that we don't we don't often talk about it Easter time or any other time, but I find it significant, and it's in your notes. Hebrews 13, 13, talking about Jesus, it says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What the author of Hebrews is doing there, and I'm going to talk about this on Sunday morning in a few weeks too, he's comparing Jesus to the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Now, you have to read Leviticus to learn about this. Yes, there are actually things worth reading in Leviticus, I promise but on the Day of Atonement, every year, the high priest would, would slaughter a bull in the temple, and then he would take a goat, and he would place, symbolically, the sins of the whole community on the head of that goat. This is the only day all year when the Jews were all commanded to fast, so they'd been doing without food all day. They gather, and they watch the high priest put their sins on the head of this goat, and then they chase the goat out of the city, out into the wilderness where it wanders until it dies. That's the scapegoat. The author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the scapegoat for us. We chased him outside the camp. He carried our sins outside the camp. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, now that we're his children, let's go out there with him. 
let us bear his reproach. That's something that doesn't get preached in Christian churches very often, and yet it's so biblical that I may share in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says in Philippians 4, or Philippians 3, that, that, we, might, that we might complete his suffering in a sense, that we might identify with him through our own suffering. That's what we're called to do. Now, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. If you've ever seen depictions of the crucifixion and there's a sign that says I-N-R-I. That's another thing that used to bother me when I was a kid. What does that mean? In Latin, I is the first word, first letter of Jesus. Jesus is in Greek. Uh, N, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, R is Roy, king of the Jews, or Roy, or, or Rex, king, and then uh, I, again, is the first letter in Latin of the Jews. So it's Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, I-N-R-I. I bet you'll forget that before you get home. That's okay. Jesus still loves you. Verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Just, I don't know this, but my guess is the reason John tells us that, he's sort of prefiguring the fact that someday the gospel is going to go out in every language. Now, geez, this, this depiction was written in Aramaic because that was the language of the Jews, in Latin because that was the language of the Romans, in Greek because that was the language of everybody else. Someday the gospel is going out in every single language. Verse 21, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. This really bothered them. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You've already beaten me. I've lost in this duel between us this morning, but I get my revenge. You can't change the marking on that sign. And he didn't know how correct he was. His intention was to say, hey, Jews, look what I've done to your king. Jesus knew I am the coming king. I am the once and future king. So whatever happened to Pilate, uh, this was sometime in the early 30s AD and 36 AD. So just a few years later, he was recalled to Rome because Caesar heard that he had put down a rebellion in the, among the Samaritans a little too violently, and that he'd done this kind of thing before. So he said, hey, come answer to me. And according to historians from back then, he committed suicide rather than face Caesar uh, face to face. Ironically, the very next governor, his first order of business was to depose Caiaphas and to institute a new high priest, Caiaphas, uh, we don't know much about the rest of his life, but he died about 10 years after that. So let me just talk to you about behold the man, and then we're done. Three things to say about that phrase, behold the man. Look at the man. Look at Jesus. First of all, look at Jesus. He is the only way of salvation. The Bible is crystal clear about this. Crystal clear. There, any, any thought of universalism, any thought of uh, all roads lead to the same place, you will not find a hint of that in the scriptures. At the same time, at the same time, it's not just that other religions are, cannot be true at the same time. It, it's also true that it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. 
You can't say, yes, he is the man, but you also must be baptized. He is the man, but you also must follow these rules. He is the man, but you also must agree to my doctrinal statement. Baptism, the commands of God, doctrine, these are all very important things. I think they're important enough that if you and I disagree on some of those, we probably shouldn't worship in the same church. But they don't make the difference in salvation. Only Jesus does. Behold the man. He is the way of salvation. Somehow, Pilate and Caiaphas, these very intelligent men, were standing right in the presence of God, and they both missed him. The world needs to see him, and needs to see him in us. Secondly, behold the man. He is what unifies us. You know, I, I don't, I, I'm not here to criticize any church for their strategy for reaching the lost. One of the, one of the big, um, one, of the, one of the most successful movements we've had in Southern Baptist life lately is the cowboy church movement. I'm all for it. I'm not a cowboy myself, although I grew up around that lifestyle. I mean, anything that reaches people for Christ without, uh, without varying from Christian doctrine, I'm for. However, what unifies a church shouldn't be a lifestyle choice. It shouldn't be a race. It shouldn't be a style of music. Uh, it shouldn't be a culture. It, it should be Jesus. And that's it. That's it. I mean, somebody should be able to come into this church that doesn't look anything like us or think anything like us. But if they're, they've been saved by the blood of Jesus, then we're one. That ought to be the way we are. We ought to be able to overcome all that other stuff. I love Philip Yancey's illustration. I don't remember which book it's in. But he had a friend, and, and you know he's an author, and so this friend thought, oh, well, I found this gift, perfect gift for you. It's the, 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 uh, the all-time Oxford English Dictionary. It contains virtually every English word that's ever existed, and normally it's like so many volumes, you, you need a whole shelf of your library. Well, they found a one-volume version. Problem is, in order to get all of those words into one volume, they had to make them so small you can't see them. So it's kind of a joke gift, right? But he said, I found out if I take one of those jeweler's magnifying glasses, you know, on the swivel arm, and I, I put it over my dictionary, and then I take, you know, one of those little handheld ones that, that you get at Walgreens when you reach a certain age, uh, and you, you take those two and you put one on top of the other, and you, you put them between your eyes and that book, right in the center of the two glasses, you can read perfectly. He said, here's the thing though, the further your eyes drift from the very center of those two, the further they drift, the blurrier it gets. And he said, to me, that's a perfect illustration of what we should be doing as Christians. As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, as long as he is our topic, as long as he's what we preach about, as long as he's what we're talking about and thinking about, we're gonna stay together. We're going to be focused on the right things. The further we get from that center, and man, we do that all the time, then things get blurrier. And that's when we start to fuss and fight and argue. Guys, have y'all ever been, in, you've all been in churches that have had ugly fights, I know. Have you ever been in a church that had a real fight about Jesus? I haven't. I'm sure it happens. I've just never seen it. It's always over stuff that doesn't ultimately matter. If we can just stay focused on what is right in the center, I think we'll stay together and we'll do the right thing. Then the third, behold the man. Paul in Philippians 3 says that knowing Jesus is better than anything else he's ever experienced. 
Philippians 3, Paul says, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a superstar in my faith. I was blameless, but I throw it all away. And all that matters now is knowing him. I just want to know him. I want to know him more. I want to know him so much that when I suffer, I'm happy because it helps me identify with him in his sufferings. Knowing Jesus is the thing. Behold the man. Jesus says, fix your eyes. I, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and you'll run the race with perseverance. So my previous point was about how corporately focusing on Jesus keeps us together. This last point is about how if you want to run the race well as a Christian, keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. doesn't mean you don't read another part of the Bible other than the Gospels. It does mean as you read the rest of the Bible, you see Jesus in it because he is the main character of every book of Scripture. And it means that he's got to stay the focus of your faith. Listen, I, I've been a Baptist all my life. I love Baptists. I hope I'm a Baptist when I die. I don't think it matters what I am when I get to heaven, but I'm not interested in making Baptists, and you shouldn't be either. We should be interested in making followers of Jesus, whatever church they worship in, followers of Jesus. He's the one. He is the man, the man who saves and the man who will someday rule us. And, and I didn't plan to say this, but you know, anytime you get discouraged or depressed about the state of the world, just think about Jesus, read a little of his story and think, man, how much better is this world gonna be when he's in charge? Isn't that good news? As that, is, that, is one, uh, that is one election I know which person to vote for. So, not that he needs my vote. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is so good to know that you are the one. And Lord, as we read this story, we're in the midst of, Lord, your suffering, your incredible and intense suffering for us. I thank you, Lord, that all of it was your design because of your love and because of your hatred of sin. Lord, your justice and Lord, your mercy. I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would grow in our love for you, that we would be a church that stays focused on you. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.